The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 179 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed in this show are my own and not my present or past employers. I would never disclose any sense of intelligence that I've been privileged to a result of my current employment, and I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government, and nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. Before I get started, I remind our listeners that you can go online at the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at the very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest industry news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. So tonight we have one of the most respected and sought-after information security professionals in the world with us this evening. Mr. Jim Routh is going to be joining us uh, for this episode of Task Force 7 Radio. And Jim is the former chief security officer of Aetna. He's also the, the, the former chairman of the NHISAC board. And he also sat on the, the, he was also a board member of the FSISAC as well, too. So he gets around. He knows this business. He's an active board member, advisor, and investor in several different cybersecurity companies. Jim was formerly the global head of application and mobile security for J.P. Morgan Chase, and prior to that, he was the CISO for J, uh, KPMG, DTCC, and American Express. He's got over 30 years of experience in information technology, cybersecurity, and cyber risk for numerous global firms. And we're very, very lucky to have him with us this evening. Jim, welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio. Hey, George. Thanks very much. I'm happy to be with Task Force Radio today. So, sounds great. Great, great. So we, uh, I want to kick right off and I want to talk about solar winds because this is like one of the biggest things that's happened um, in the industry uh, in, in a while. And right out of the gate, you know, the focus is on, is on, is in the government. It's, it's on the media once again, and, it, and cybersecurity is really hot and it's really hot out there. And that's obviously because, you know, solar winds, Microsoft, Qualys, F5, all these things are happening. What were the real lessons from the solar winds incident and how has it changed things from an enterprise-wide security perspective? George, I'm going to answer that question, but um, you know, given the fact that I was actually a history undergrad uh, major, uh, I'm going to share a little bit of historical data. Think of a supply chain poisoning uh, incident that impacted thousands of enterprises around the world causing significant business disruption uh, by basically pushing out uh, malware in software updates to, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands uh, potentially of uh, unsuspecting uh, enterprises. And of course, all of that applies to SolarWinds and the incident that uh, 
we've all appreciated and learned to, uh, to understand. But the reality is what I'm talking about is 2017, uh, and uh, it was not Pecha. And uh, uh, it, the similarities to this, I think, are, are pretty significant uh, because supply chain poisoning is, uh, is something that impacts so many companies, largely because the way we develop software today, uh, enterprises that create software, whether it's commercial software, whether it's uh, software for you know, business purposes, we're assembling uh, code components that we get from open source software. And so repository management is uh, a critical and essential part of the software development process. Uh, and so when that gets compromised with backdoors, uh, the, you know, the cascading effect across uh, enterprises are just phenomenal and, uh, and, and, and tremendous impact. And so this is actually a lesson we've learned before, and that's kind of the point uh, of, ref of reference. So let's dial in on the three most important things for the enterprise, any enterprise of any size, the most important things to be investing your time and energy in as a result of uh, the solar winds uh, impact on, uh, on the industry. Number one, software development is essential to most commercial enterprises. And so for those enterprises that are developing software, make sure that your DevOps teams are using standard identity access management controls when they're setting up their credentials for access to the software repository. Uh, so whether it's a GitHub or GitLab uh, that's being used for uh, access to open source components and, uh, and structuring uh, the uh, code components for ultimately uh, release into the build process, um, that function. It's a SaaS service and it requires the developer that's uh, setting up the account uh, to use, you know, a password that's a lot more complex than SolarWinds123. And uh, uh, these are things we know how to do. Identity access management is something we, the enterprise, we know how to do this. We just have to apply it to uh, repo management. And that's the part that really hasn't uh, taken hold by most enterprises today. And of course, with DevOps uh, being a little looser in terms of uh, outside the, cent the purview of centralized uh, IT uh, infrastructure, then uh, that's why the, these kind of controls get, uh, uh, get bypassed or, or uh, you know, compromised by sophisticated threat actors. So that's kind of step one. Step two is uh, to uh, recognize that the SaaS provider of the repo management software is a SaaS provider that should be part of your third-party governance program. So there should be uh, specific control requirements that are enforced through your third-party governance uh, program on uh, GitHub, GitLab, uh, Bitbucket, and other, uh, any kind of uh, software repository, you know, code management services. And, uh, and that's, uh, that's something that in most third-party uh, governance programs in enterprise today, it's, um, there's no category that's specific to 
uh, code repository, and there really should be uh, because it's unique. It's different. Uh, re re requires, as we've discovered and learned the hard way, it requires you know some significant control over who has access to the build components that ultimately make it into uh, the build process. So, uh, so that's number two. Number three is the, uh, the only one of uh, the three things that are kind of the most important lessons learned here uh, that is uh, somewhat new, somewhat uh, innovative. And it's a category of cybersecurity control capability that's called workload runtime protection. And what it is, is essentially a code component that you're putting into a, an environment. And it, it's doing one of two things and it's your choice. The first is when it builds a pattern for normal application behavior. And then it identifies when behaviors outside that pattern uh, are manifested and you can choose uh, to take action or not. So it gives you an alert of a pattern that's, uh, you know, of a breaking of an established pattern of uh, application behavior. Um, the second choice is to just uh, prevent any deviation from that pattern uh, from the, uh, the runtime protection capability uh, that you're putting in your environment. Now, there are uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of six to eight products from companies available today that you can buy uh, to do this uh, in this uh, category. And there will be many more that I think uh, uh, as, the, as the category grows and the need uh, is recognized, there'll be more. The key is to get started with it. At, at any enterprise at any level, you got to get started with understanding how to use this type of technology. It's essentially it's some machine learning algorithms that are recognizing application behavior. You can uh, install these uh, components in uh, cloud uh, infrastructure as service type of offering or in your on-prem environment. And frankly, you should start with uh, maybe your repo management uh, environment. Uh, and because that's really the putting the preventative or potentially preventative control at its source. Uh, but these are the three learnings that we actually learned also from not Petya, but didn't apply uh, as aggressively as we really need to. And I'm talking about really from uh, all enterprises. And there are things we really have to do today because the, the the landscape of uh, threat actors that are highly sophisticated, sponsored by you know nation states in many cases, um, impacting uh, business from uh, really all all types of industries across all types uh, of enterprises. This is uh, the new normal, and this is something we have to deal with today. So, um, so these are kind of the three lessons learned that I like to remind enterprises to take action with. And the third one is, is the one that's probably the most uh, challenging because it's relatively new. How many companies are actually doing this, you think? I mean, is uh, that's, I know of uh, certainly several that, uh, that I've worked for previously that uh, have the, the run, workload runtime protection capability installed. But I'll tell you, both those companies just recently added identity access management controls to the DevOps process and the repo uh, and put the repo management into third-party governance. So that's, that's relatively new. So 
that, those are my only data points, George. I hope everybody's doing this because uh, it's, it's really not uh, extraordinary in terms of the labor associated with, uh, with doing this. And I think any enterprise of any size can take steps in, the, in these three areas today. Some folks are saying that it's next to impossible to detect some of these supply chain attacks. Do you agree with those kind of statements? I mean... Um, I think there's truth in that statement based on conventional controls. Hmm. Um, and so, and I, and, but, but I don't think they're absolutes. In other words, uh, workload runtime protection is probably the best pr- and, and the only maybe protective uh, control that we can deploy in, uh, in real time uh, to prevent malicious behavior from, uh, uh, from software that's not supposed to be in our environments. Are these RASP tools you're talking about? You know, the RASP categorization um, is basically moving, uh, you know, software security development capabilities closer to the production environment. Uh, they, this is a little bit different in that these are um, – uh, tools that look specifically at behavioral uh, patterns uh, for the the software at, at right above the kernel level, so it's you know really a, a, a basic level, uh, and then will identify or block uh, anything outside the pattern. So it's a it's a probably a, another level of sophistication or capability that uh, is on top of what traditionally or conventionally has been called a RASP. Product now, I'm sure those RAS product vendors would take exception with what I'm saying. So I'm really, I'm talking more from a enterprise perspective. Um, I don't think it's as simple as just uh, you know traditional RAS capabilities. I think the the ones that I've seen are more consistent and stable, with fewer um, you know e- easier to operate in a in a runtime environment that. Uh, with more certainty, I guess, uh, is, uh, is the difference. So I'll leave it up to market analysts to determine whether that's an extension of RASP or not. Um, but um, from my standpoint, they're, they're, it's kind of the next evolution. So Jim, for the first time in a while, I think some, t- some cybersecurity budgets are under a lot of pressure. Mm-hmm. And this comes as, you know, you just described, some changes need to be made in the way we do things in the industry. Mm-hmm. So how do these two things commingle? I mean, are you seeing that the, 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 the cutbacks in IT and in cybersecurity specifically, which traditionally over the last five years haven't been the case, right? There hasn't been, even if IT was cutting back like 10%, cybersecurity was still growing, mm-hmm. right? And there was always that sort of animosity in mm-hmm. some of the tech teams while you, you saw the cybersecurity domain growing while they, they were taking a haircut every year. But right. that's not the same this year, it, 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 at least in some places. Mm-hmm. How, how, are you seeing the same thing or what are you hearing out there? I'm not seeing a lot of that, but, you know, frankly, I'm not really looking at it. So I'm not probably not the best person to ask. What I will say this, uh, the hardest job of a cybersecurity professional uh, is to choose how to allocate scarce resource to the highest risk. And so when you have constraints, budget constraints uh, specifically, um, it's really hard to make these trade-off decisions for example, do I deal with known vulnerabilities today in the environment and remediate those or take the same 
labor cost and dollars and apply it to something innovative like workload runtime protection that I just was talking about or something you know, relatively new like uh, trying to uh, migrate away from passwords. And, and so interesting enough, uh, cybersecurity professionals, if you work for a CISO uh, and you think to yourself, geez, making a you know, decision to invest capability, it's the easiest thing in the world. What's, what's the big deal? Turns out that it's really hard. And it's really hard because you have to make trade-offs. And the tr- some of the trade-offs are between fixing known problems today or preventing uh, future problems that are likely. And making that trade-off on how to allocate decisions, it's hard under the best of circumstances. And then you have to put that in the context of the business and the business, the enterprise needs uh, more broadly uh, and uh, and it's really difficult. So, George, the, the answer to your question is the, the more that budgets are constrained, the more difficult these kinds of proactive measures can be for the, the, uh, the CISO. And my, you know, first of all, I admire everybody who's uh, in the role of a chief information security officer today. Uh, and there's a lot of uh, industries, uh, I'll just say health providers would be a great category of uh, of institutions that have limited resources and huge diversity of IT, uh, all in the context of uh, providing you know great healthcare to uh, to all of us, and it's it's really difficult and challenging uh, to do this uh, to make these kinds of trade off decisions. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, you know the CISO is the one that's going to get fired when there's a major security breach. Sometimes, if it's significant enough, the CEO goes along, uh, but uh, certainly the CISO. And so the CISOs have to, you know, make that decision between investing in something new that may have some uncertainty to it in terms of uh, cybersecurity control design, uh, but also may have some breakthrough capability that's game-changing for threat actors uh, or. Uh, you know, cutting back and reducing staff, and uh, and you know, trying to figure out how to allocate to this to the uh, the top risks. So there's there's nothing easy about it. It's very difficult, even for enterprises that have uh, don't have constraints from a budget standpoint. Um, there's nothing easy about making these decisions. Yeah, you know, you said something that was very interesting to me, and you said that if there's a major breach, usually the CISO is going to you know, lose the, lose their job and maybe even the CEO if it's really significant. But it seems to me like, do you think we're still in that place where if there's, if there's a major breach that the CISO automatically is the fall person? I mean, I think I it's mean are, are we still course. there? I, I, I think we're moving away and getting, it's evolving to a, a little bit better place where there's a little bit less emphasis on blame uh, after uh, a, a breach. But, you know, I guess the best way to answer that question is the healthiest, most resilient uh, enterprise from a cybersecurity standpoint today has characteristics and, and attributes that include learning from cybersecurity incidents uh, and uh, applying those learnings going forward in a proactive way. That's what cyber resilience is in the best case. The notion of Avoiding all uh, breaches, all uh, security incidents is absolutely absurd. It, any enterprise it of is. size, yeah, there, yeah, there's are incidents all the time. And it's really not a question of whether you get attacked. The question is, how quickly can you recover? Yes. And then how do you apply the lessons learned? And I'm going to 
maybe pick on uh, at least one institution that uh, is deserved uh, of, uh, of being picked on, uh, which is our federal government. Uh, we have to learn, A, to stop blaming enterprises for, you know, failures in cybersecurity breaches. Uh, so that's kind of step one. Step two is we have to take our own medicine, and, and this is within federal agencies. We have to learn from cybersecurity incidents, uh, you know, going forward and apply those learnings without looking for someone to, you know, fire uh, as a scapegoat. Exactly. It's, a, it's, a, it's just as much about prevention as, as your response and recovery from these incidents, because in my opinion, everybody's going to have a bad day. Everybody's going to have that day. You're not, no one is exempt just the way things are built and, and the way the internet's built and, and, and um, the way well, the tech stacks exist today. And, and that's it's, absolutely true. Uh, but the other side of the coin is I think the most resilient enterprises are those that embrace security incidents, recognizing that they're the best way to learn. I mean, you learn exactly which controls hold up in real time against sophisticated actors and which ones don't. And you can test these things uh, all day long. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with testing these capabilities, but the best way to learn is in an actual cybersecurity incident. And so protecting the opportunity to learn from these events and then apply the learnings, uh, that's essential. And I think uh, in every enterprise, uh, that's, that's what we need to do, including the federal government and the agencies that are protecting our country. Um, that's what we have to apply. All right, folks, we're going to transition into our commercial break here. But hey, if you're a social media junkie, you're on social media, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio, and you'll be immediately connected to the extended TF7 family. For any inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, please email me directly at george at tf7radio.com. That's george at tf 7 that's with the number 7 radio.com. We're going to pause with some quick messages from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with our special guest, advisory board member to Clear Sky, Mr. Jim Routh. Whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. In today's interconnected world, digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work, live, and communicate. In business, staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future. However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. By delivering state-of-the-art cyber risk analytics, X-Analytics is setting the standard to bring business clarity to the complex cyber threats organizations face each and every day. When it comes to understanding your financial exposure to cyber risk, trust what the global cyber insurance industry and Fortune 500 companies trust. Trust X-Analytics to guide you through the uncertainty into cyber risk clarity. For more information about X-Analytics, visit our website today at x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X-Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management. 
As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 hacker innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at security-innovation.org or Google Sinet, S-I-N-E-T. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our special guest, the advisory board member of her clear sky, Mr. Jim Routh. So, Jim, I want to talk to you a little bit about policy. And, you know, we recently had a change in the administration and the U.S. has a new president and this new administration uh, in the executive branch. And I want to talk a little bit about some of the changes to federal cyber policy that you believe will be put in place over time. You know, what changes do you think should be uh, considered, you know, as we move forward here? Hey, George, it's a a great question. I think we've already seen some of the changes in that key positions, really leadership positions for both uh, the White House uh, as well as for uh, uh, respected federal agencies. Uh, They're getting filled with talented, uh, you know, talented professionals uh, and some of these positions were eliminated under the previous administration. Uh, and, I, and I will tell you that um, a cybersecurity policy uh, for the federal government has never been more important in my, you know, uh, several decade uh, career in cybersecurity. So certainly in recent times uh, for a whole host of reasons um, for one of the reasons is that um, there's so much uh, and so many examples of nation state sponsored threat activity uh, that's brazen, pretty open, uh, and impacting the private sector uh, and critical infrastructure for our, our, our country. So uh, that the stakes are really much higher the other thing is that cybersecurity offensive uh, weaponry and capability uh, 
used to be a little bit more clandestine and less impactful uh, and, and overt uh, in uh, political conflicts uh, around the world. And what we're seeing today is uh, much more uh, cyber uh, hacking for political purposes and the spillover effect uh, impacting uh, the private sector in a material way. Uh, you know, we've got, uh, you know, China is a, a great example that historically has harvested both uh, traditional uh, s- um, security information for political purposes, but, um, but also commercial uh, uh, interest and intellectual capital from the commercial sector uh, in order to compete uh, economically with the United States and other uh, Developed countries and uh, and and done so really at scale, uh, just you know, tr- in terms of its volume. And so, the the fact is, cybersecurity policy um, should be revisited because we've had you know some seminal events that um, I think we have to learn from. Um, and I'm I'm thinking of the, the most significant event in I think in my experience is uh, shadow brokers uh, essentially getting access to the offensive weaponry uh, created by the NSA. Uh, And the reason I say that is you see derivatives of this capability, uh, you know, across basic fundamental ransomware attacks today that are uh, strafing the, you know, the middle market uh, in terms of uh, enterprises that aren't, you know, aren't really equipped to deal with that kind of uh, attack vector and the sophistication of the weaponry. And of course, the weaponry was you know, funded by our taxpayer dollars and uh, essentially uh, was you know, released to uh, our biggest uh, you know, political adversaries uh, around the globe. And, uh, and that's, that's a problem that's pervasive in cybersecurity today. And so the question is, you know, does it make sense to put so many of our dollars uh, in cybersecurity at the federal level into offensive capability? Uh, we've created a market, uh, I'll call it a brokerage of zero days that, um, that are, you know, expensive, but really available to any major uh, nation state today. And uh, there are, you know, up to a hundred of different nation states that are now uh, using zero days for political purposes, in some cases to, uh, you know, oppress uh, specific uh, people and types of people. And, uh, and so the question is, does it still make sense as a, as a policy uh, to invest in so much offensive capability when the U.S. clearly has the largest attack surface uh, in terms of critical infrastructure that the world really depends on. Uh, and, you know, maybe it's time for us to start using the intellectual capability that we've developed over time as uh, cybersecurity uh, leaders uh, and use that capability for preventative uh, protection capabilities for enterprises versus uh, exclusively, you know, or largely uh, funding uh, 
uh, offensive weaponry that uh, is is coming back to hurt us. So I think it's a good opportunity. Now, the um, previous administration uh, really ignored a lot of cybersecurity uh, protocols and opportunities, uh, and frankly, uh, development or evolution of practices and ultimately policy. I think a previous administration before that had a lot of opportunities to revisit our cybersecurity policy, but failed really to do so. Uh, so I think we have an opportunity today, uh, not only to put key leadership positions back in place, which I think is being done, uh, revisit uh, some of our core capabilities as a country uh, and as it relates to cybersecurity. Uh, and then thirdly, maybe revisit and, and uh, make some adjustments uh, to uh, our resources so that we have more preventative capability uh, given the, uh, the tax surface that we all enjoy every day. Uh, so in my mind, I think there is an opportunity today. I'd like to see federal agencies, um, you know, kind of honor the uh, established practice of learning from cybersecurity incidents and learning how to protect our organizations uh, so that other nation states really can't get access to the crown jewels, so to speak, uh, uh, of the country. And I think that uh, that learning is healthy. And I think that's, uh, I think we have an opportunity for that. It, it remains to be seen whether, uh, whether, you know, we can uh, make material change there. This is interesting. You know, uh, I see that Russia's cyber activity, uh, the cyber attacks that they've recently engaged in against the United States was recently mentioned as part of a sanction package against Russia, the, the Biden administration just announced. And on Saturday, the Wall Street Journal has a, an article out. And the headline of the article says that in punishing Russia for solar winds, Biden upends U.S. convention on cyber espionage. And it further states in the subtitle, that the administration said Moscow breached bounds of acceptable online spying with hacked size and attack on the U.S. private sector. I'd like to get your thoughts on that. I didn't know that there was a there was a actual the bounds were actually drawn of acceptable online spying. We I think what we struggled with in the past was no one really knew where that line would cross. Like what, what and yes. what would happen after that? And I think I don't think we still know because. The, the sanctions, even though the, the cyber espionage was mentioned as, as one of the reasons for the sanctions, there was a whole bunch of other reasons mentioned for the punitive measures. Um, so what do you think? Uh, was it clear enough? Was it, uh, was it, is it sending the right message? And where are we going so with this? I think there's two elements um, that, uh, that I'll address. The first and most directly, um, I think of... Um, the uh, Russia as a not so much a nation state, but really an organized criminal syndicate, mm -hmm. uh, and it's uh, it's pervasive. Uh, and so um, the attitude and approach that drives uh, the behavior uh, and and the impact to other countries and other entities uh, is clearly that of um, uh, I don't know a better word thuggery, <laughs> and so. You know, when, you, when you're dealing with a bully, you know, punching the bully in the nose is, you know, pretty good medicine in most cases. And so I think that's likely what the United States is doing. And I, I think there's some 
precedent for that and, uh, and a ways of different countries of basically identifying where boundaries are. Uh, maybe there are norms, but, but uh, nonetheless norms that could be adhered to. So I, I, so I see in some respects being aggressive against a thug is, uh, is important given the scope uh, of what they did in terms of uh, really changing and adjusting our thinking around how we elect uh, government officials that, uh, in the elections. So, so I, I think, um, you know, stepping it up a bit, I think is, is perfectly appropriate. The, I guess the second part of that is that um, we learned um, something crucial with uh, the use of Stuxnet uh, against a nation state where, you know, essentially clearly cyber warfare. Uh, and what we learned is that those same types of sophisticated weapons can be used against us, uh, you know, uh, easily. And, um, and that wasn't something that we necessarily bargained for at the time. That's something we have to come to grips with today. Uh, and I think, our, I think our policy needs to consider the, those implications, because there's, uh, over the years, there's a lot of really sophisticated weaponry that's available uh, not to an exclusive club of four cybersecurity leaders in terms of their offensive capabilities uh, outside the U.S., but really all countries. Um, and, that's, and that's largely driving um, the world we live in and from a you know, technology standpoint that... Uh, that makes it more difficult and challenging. So I think there's an opportunity to revisit some of our policy and practices, uh, both, uh, you know, at the federal level, I welcome that opportunity. There, there are tremendously committed and talented professionals uh, that, uh, you know, spend their career uh, working in service for our country uh, in, uh, in cybersecurity across multiple agencies. And, you know, I'd like to see over time them getting the best talent available and, and, uh, and developing that talent. And so part of that is uh, improving our, our practices. So it's frustrating that all these offensive tools were actually created and funded by us, and it now they're being used against us. It's, it's exactly. incredibly frustrating. Do you think we need to take it a step further and we're drawing up our policy to say, hey, look, if A happens then B will happen, right? If, if you do A, we will do B. Like, do we need to draw a line in the sand? And what should that be? Was, were, were these sanctions forceful enough? Yeah, so the, it's interesting, the concept of protocol or established norms, which we certainly have developed uh, on the nuclear side of the house uh, in terms of nuclear weapons, uh, but... Um, Really, it's a, a bit of a free-for-all in terms of cybersecurity. And so the question is, can we evolve to those kinds of norms or not? And I'll just point out that, you know, the countries that are our biggest adversaries uh, from a cybersecurity standpoint uh, are also, uh, you know, fairly significant trading partners. And so it's a multi-dimensional type yeah. of relationships, uh, you know, that are established between uh, respective countries. And so the, it's a, it's not easy to find a clean answer and B we don't agree with most things with these countries today, just politically. Um, so, 
how are we going to stick to, you know, some cybersecurity norms when, you know, for the last 10 years, really, it's been a free-for-all uh, in terms of, uh, you know, cyber warfare. So um, I don't think that genie's going to go back in the bottle. Um, <laughs> and I, I wish that were not true, but I, I just don't think that that's likely. Um, but I do think that as the premier and, and, you know, certainly the most sophisticated cybersecurity capability of a nation state uh, in the U.S., um, I think it's up to us to uh, evolve our policy and practices uh, in a more sustainable way, um, despite the challenges of the environments that uh, we're working in. All right, Jim, we got to take another short break to hear from our sponsors, but don't go away, folks. We'll be right back with our special guest, advisory board member for Clear Sky, Mr. Jim Routh. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. In today's interconnected world, digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work, live, and communicate. In business, staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future. However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. By delivering state-of-the-art cyber risk analytics, X-Analytics is setting the standard to bring business clarity to the complex cyber threats organizations face each and every day. When it comes to understanding your financial exposure to cyber risk, trust what the global cyber insurance industry and Fortune 500 companies trust. Trust X-Analytics to guide you through the uncertainty into cyber risk clarity. For more information about X-Analytics, visit our website today at x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X-Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 hacker innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at security-innovation.org or Google Sinet, S-I-N-E-T. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. You are listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. 
Again, that's Task Force 7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Ritas. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our special guest, advisory board member for Clear Sky, Mr. Jim Routh. So, Jim, I want to talk to you a little bit about the job market and, you know, what's going on there. So, this year we have about, there's some estimations out there, there'll be 3 million cyber jobs worldwide that'll go unfilled. Um, you know, this is this is crazy, crazy job market. Lots of pressure. Uh, there's, there's actually, I think there's a, there's a war for talent out there. You know, firms are fighting over talent. Um, how do we, how do we, as an enterprise, these large enterprises cope with these challenges of supply and demand in the marketplace in the cybersecurity industry? Yeah, it's a wonderful question, George, because, uh, this has been a challenge that's been growing and it's been around for some time. So, uh, the, there's basically an imbalance between the requirements of enterprises for cybersecurity talent and the available talent that uh, comes out of school and, uh, you know, early in career uh, type talent that uh, is looking for jobs. And um, the, um, it's a global phenomenon. It's not, uh, you know, unique to our country, but uh, it, it is a significant challenge. And, and I believe uh, that it requires uh, a slightly different orientation to leadership as a CISO. And I'll be very uh, explicit about what I mean. Um, when I started, and actually, George, when you started too, uh, in our professional careers, we were um, coming into the professional market at a time where training and education was determined by your employer, uh, and the opportunities for advancement were also determined by your employer. Um, in many cases, that was done based on tenure or time in uh, certain roles. In other cases, uh, it was based uh, you know, more on performance. But in almost all cases, your leaders had input uh, into uh, your career advancement. And the boundary of employee-employee relationship was one where your employer basically was looking out for your best interest in your professional development. Um, now, if we look at today, and by the way, that was a long time ago for those that uh, need a little bit of context, uh, you know, maybe 30, 40 years ago. So, uh, but today, a lot of the HR practices for large enterprises, in some cases have, you know, still mimic a time where that was the employee-employee relationship. And today, I don't think that's the case at all. It's actually quite different. I think employees today have a fundamental responsibility to manage their own professional development. Uh, and that's their obligation uh, to do that and their responsibility. And they need to be more proactive, which I think they are, uh, in, um, in managing their development uh, and uh, taking steps uh, to ensure that they're developing the right skills that are marketable uh, both today and, and, and going forward. And I think the enterprise today has to support that and has to be more supportive of that. So um, number one, as a CISO, and I've, I've said this many times, I never had any trouble finding world-class talent uh, and diverse world-class talent. 
Um, but having said that, um, the reason is because I didn't follow standard practices. So um, standard practices, as an example, uh, for employee retention, um, I totally ignored um, because I don't believe in employee retention. I actually think the terminology is fundamentally flawed. Retention might be an outcome or a result, but you don't retain an employee. I mean, that, that, that doesn't describe the relationship. I think what we do is we develop employees or more uh, accurately, we give employees opportunities to develop skills that they wish uh, to invest in to improve their marketability. And marketability is basically their choices and options as professionals. And so um, what I did uh, as a CISO, uh, given the supply and demand uh, inconsistencies that, uh, you know, that we all faced across all industries, uh, is uh, I used my own network for recruiting and I attracted talent based on what they wanted to learn. So I'd ask every single person uh, that I ever hired, what is it that you want to learn? What skills do you want to learn? And my job as a leader was to give them an opportunity to learn the skills that they wish to learn. Not, not the skills that I wanted them to learn, the skills that they chose that they wanted to learn. And now, number one, by them choosing the skill, they're going to be more committed to actually developing that skill and, you know, going through the development activities that are necessary to both uh, master the techniques, apply those techniques, learn from the experience of applying those techniques, and ultimately demonstrate them in a sustainable way. So, um, it's actually in their best interests uh, to choose the skills, and it's in our best interest as, a, as an enterprise uh, in that I had many employees that had opportunities for uh, much greater earning uh, in other organizations, but they chose to accelerate their learning uh, because they knew that that would lead to marketability that, that gives them choice and choices are good. Um, and so from my standpoint, I'd like us in the enterprise side of things as leaders, stop talking about um, retention. Um, just talk about development. Uh, and, you know, I, as just like you, George, we work for big companies, uh, but in every company that I've worked at, um, I've spoken to each individual about their choices of skills that they chose to invest in uh, to ensure that we as an organization and, and me as a leader could be supportive of what they wanted to learn. Uh, and as a result, I had no, no trouble at all finding talent, attracting talent, uh, you know, keeping talent. Uh, my, uh, you know, my successor now at uh, Mass Mutual is uh, unbelievably talented, uh, and uh, and and you know, is going to do great things in uh, for both Mass Mutual as well as for uh, the industry going forward. Uh, and um, and it's it's all based on a you know a consistent set of practices, committed to individuals choosing the skills that they wish to invest in and giving them opportunities to do that. It's, it means more of a, instead of fitting people into roles is really creating roles for uh, what people want to learn, uh, what skills they want to learn. Uh, and it's much different than, you know, the conventional uh, 
approach to employee relationship that has its roots in a, in a very different time. So, um, so I encourage all CISOs and all cybersecurity leaders, um, if you want to uh, get, you know, attract top talent and you want to develop top talent, uh, commit yourself. You know, 25, uh, 30% of your time should be focused on development of employees, specifically the skills that they wish to learn. And if you do that, I think it's a sustainable way to always have top talent, even in a marketplace where there's an imbalance. Well said, Jim. We're out of time. I really appreciate you coming on the show. I want to have George. you back often, more, a lot more often. Thanks, George. I appreciate that. Thanks so much. All right, folks, it's time to go. But before I do, I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 